0: Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport, past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today in our last episode episode 12 we explored the history of vehicle dynamics and in this episode episode 13 and in episode 14 we're going to go in a slightly new direction and explore motorcycles as mike and i are as much into motorcycles as we are into cars in this episode we're going to explore motorcycle suspension that's episode 13 and in episode 14 we're going to explore motorcycle dynamics so mike where do we begin
1: Hi, Kevin. Yeah, we've spoken in quite a bit of detail about car steering, about car suspension, about car dynamics. Now, when we talk about motorbikes, there are a number of aspects of suspension design that are actually quite similar to cars. So some of the terminology will be the same, and actually the basic functions are ultimately ultimately the same. If you think about what the suspension is trying to do, it has to maintain the tire contact with the road to maximize the grip. It has to respond to the rider's control requests in a manner that's accurate and actually is repeatable. And it has to do that with adequate feedback. And it has to do all of these things while isolating the rider from the bumps of the road. So all of those um, features, all of those requirements are the same as car suspension. However, the vehicle dynamics are quite different between a, a motorbike and a car. And the package and the mass constraints place different challenges for the suspension engineer of the motorcycles.
0: Because like the first motorcycles were in effect bicycles, very rudimentary machines, small engines, mounted the rear axle, usually with a belt. Um. So how did motorcycles develop from there?
1: Yeah, they were very simple. You know, for many years, that, that diamond shape of the bicycle frame dictated the layout of the bike as a whole and also how the front forks were designed and how they were used f- around the uh, front wheels. So, uh, the front forks for maybe people who are not used to the terminology of bikes, the front forks are the two beams that go from the handlebars down to either side of the front wheel and the wheel axle is attached to the bottom of them. Now today, these forks are also the dampers and springs, but on the earliest motorbikes they were just rigid tubes just like bicycles. And then at the back, the rear wheels were also located rigidly to that triangular that that diamond shaped frame and um, so it was a very rigid connection for the rear axle so. There was no suspension, and we're talking sort of the turn of the the start of the last century. You know, road conditions were very poor at the time. They were uncomfortable to ride. So the very first attempts to provide some sort of comfort was to spring mount the seat itself, and that's similar to older bicycles as well.
0: Yeah, and you see that on some of the early Harleys where the rider and pillion had a sprung seat.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. So, it, wheel, it, it, it,
0: so that would have done something for the comfort, but really not for the handling.
1: No, no, not at yeah. all. Not at all. I, I didn't do much for the comfort either, really. But, you know, the, the the wheels were still rigidly attached to the frame. So the tires would just skip and shudder over the bumps, right? There was, there was no compliance in that suspension. So it's not good for, for handling. And really, you're asking a lot of these little springs under the seat. So, you know, there wasn't much. You know, the comfort, comfort was fairly limited. In 1913, jumping forward a few years then, the aerial company was the first company to introduce spring forks at the front in an arrangement that they called the Druid Fork. So the forks themselves were still rigid tubes. and They still looked like bicycle forks, but they had two extra features. So they had a strengthened brace in front of them, which formed a sort of a parallelogram of tubes. And that whole arrangement was mounted on a spring at the back. So the spring now provided the increased compliance over the rough roads And the strengthening brace gave extra lateral support for the forks, because one of the issues that was happening at the time was that motorbikes were becoming quicker. Cornering lean angles were increasing, and as well as that the bikes themselves were becoming heavier, the frames were heavier, the engines were heavier. And the combination of all of those meant that the front forks were subjected to very high bending forces. So those rigid tubes that the the bicycles had, you know, they just weren't strong enough to cope. Because they were essentially still
0: working off the original motorcycle or the original
1: bicycle frame,
0: now trying to run the same forces through a, a motorcycle. Yes. So the front forks were bending and the front wheel, wheels then were moving sideways in a direction which we didn't want.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, if you think of a, a modern motorcycle suspension today, the forks have multiple simultaneous functions, you know, so you think the obvious one is that they have to place the front wheel in the right location right so if put it out the ro- in the front. The second thing is they have to allow the, the wheel to corner, so it has to be able to rotate the front wheel to allow the steering of the of the bike pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. As well as that the front forks provide the springing and damping for the front wheel and then, as well as that you have all of the bending so they have to resist the bending sort of fore and aft because of braking and accelerating. And they also have to resist that lateral bending that you get under cornering. So that's a lot going on. But
0: five things going on.
1: Yeah, that's uh, right. Five main functions, right? So and, and that's all being handled by two forks, which are unsupported, right? So there's a lot going on there. Now, at the time, sort of um, in through the 20s, a number of manufacturers were developing telescopic tubes in order to replace those rigid forks. And in 1935, BMW introduced on their R12 motorbike, the first hydraulically damped front forks with integrated springs. And these are really the first forks that we'd recognize today. So you have a stiff steel tube and that's actuated over a steel sliding ram with a spring and with hydraulic, um, hydraulic oil inside to provide some damping. And then the upper portion of the fork is held in a clamp and that clamp itself can rotate around a central axis. And that's now providing all of that steering mechanism.
0: Right, so these forks then had the wheel, or sorry, had the wheel axle mounted directly at the bottom of the forks.
1: Yeah, today they certainly do. That's exactly how you think of it today. And in the early days, many of the bikes did, but there are also a number of different configurations where the front wheel axle was connected to the fork by articulated linkages. So the front forks, are not vertical on any bike. They're not vertical. They 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 occur at a, at an angle um from the vertical, and we'll talk about that in a, you know quite a bit more detail in the next episode on motorcycle dynamics. Oh. But one of the reasons is it provides the same function as the caster angle in a car suspension that we talked about in episode eleven, and that's that it adds straight line stability. So on the earlier motorbikes, the forks were not as stiff as they were today, where the material stiffness just wasn't there. So they needed to be orientated in as near a vertical position as possible to try to limit that bending force. And um, to put this, the rake angle close to the tire contact patch, it didn't, it reduced that cast, what we would call caster angle in cars or, or rake angle in, in bikes. And it didn't give very much self-centering ability
0: okay so with the material strength being a problem at the time what did the manufacturers do to deal with that problem
1: yeah so what and quite a few manufacturers that is is they had configurations where a linkage arm was placed at the bottom of the fork and the wheel spindle or the wheel axle was attached to the other end of that linkage so that offset the axle from the bottom of the fork and this created more self-centering and it made the bikes more more stable now there are two variations on that there's a, a leading link which places the wheel axle ahead of the fork pivot and there's a trailing trailing link which places it behind both types improved stability but the leading link one had the extra benefit of it eliminated some fork compression under braking so it gave him a, a more of a horizontal ride so it, it added a little bit of comfort as well leading link geometry was it you know, was was more popular than trailing link trailing link was used the Indian company would be the most common um, user of the trailing trailing link. Leading link was was used by many manufacturers and it was popular right up until the 60s on off-road bikes. And probably the most famous example by far and away was the highest selling motorbike ever. So the Honda Cub. The the, the Cub sold over 100 million units since it was introduced in in 58 and that had leading link suspension.
0: Excellent. So if you consider that in our... Game Setters and Trendsetters episode our Game Changers and Trendsetters episode sorry mm. we talked about the VW Beetle selling 14 million and the Lada selling 17 million right. no question that the Honda Cub is the ultimate mass mobility motorcycle absolutely okay yeah. so now the front forks are what we would recognize let's take us to the rear of the motorcycle talk about the rear suspension
1: okay so going back to that diamond shape so uh, the diamond frame shape so initially the rear wheel was located rigidly um, in the in the frame And for the same reasons of ride and handling, the engineers wanted to allow some form of springing mechanism. The rear wheel did not need to accommodate the steering input of the front wheels, obviously, but it did need to accommodate the drive mechanism. So most motorbikes use chain drive from the earliest days. And if the rear wheel was to move up and down relative to the frame, it needed to allow the chain to stay in constant tension on the drive side as well. So they had to find a way of, of, of allowing uh, allowing that to happen.
0: And allowing that movement. So it gave different engineering requirements for the rear suspension. We're talking about a completely different concept.
1: That's right, yeah. And, and, and that's why suspension concepts ended up being very different and still are at the front and the rear. So in 1928, Moto Guzzi introduced the rear wheel suspension on the, sorry, so the first rear wheel suspension on the 500cc Gran Turismo. So this had tubes running from the rear axle, either side of the wheel, forward to a pivot point on the frame. And that allowed the rear wheel to swing up and down and allowed a friction damper spring to be added. And as a result, we now call that suspension mechanism the swinger. We still call it the swinger, Um, but it wasn't very stiff because it just had two beams going forward and it wasn't able to provide very much lateral movement. So that same problem we talked about on the front. And then a year later, Vincent, the British company, they, they introduced triangulated swing arms. So the lower portion of the triangle provided the pivot for the wheel, just like the Moto Guzzi did, but there was an upper portion of the triangle and that acted on twin coil springs either side of the wheel. And this is an arrangement that we'd recognize on, on a lot of bikes, today, or a variant of an arrangement we recognize today.
0: Right, so we saw in episode 11 on suspension, many different types of spring mechanism were used on cars. Did
1: motorcycles get the same treatment? Yeah, they did. So so coil springs are the most common, but uh, in the 1930s, there was another almost equally common type, and that was a, a plunger suspension. It's very similar to the sliding pillar suspension that was used by Lancia in the 1930s and 1940s. So in this case, the wheel is not swung around a pivot point, but it does actually slide directly up and down. And that was that was pretty popular. It was used by many um, big manufacturers actually, right through the nineteen thirties. You know, companies like Indian, BMW, BSA, or the Belgian company Sarah Lee. They they all used plunger suspension um, quite a lot actually. Right, so so rear
0: suspension became popular. Became a a, a a a thing a bike had to have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The manufacturers were keen to introduce them as they could see the benefit for both the ride and the handling. But the biggest problem in the early days was that the bearings and the structures allowed a lot of movement. So the rear wheel moved laterally under cornering and it it actually didn't inspire confidence for the rider. You know for a number of years there was a sort of a belief that rigid frame bikes were more precise to pr- to position on the road. And then if we bring in an Irish connection actually in 1935 the very talented Irish motorbike rider Stanley Woods he won the Isle of Man Senior TT on a Moto Guzzi and it was fitted with swing arms, and that was really the turning point in the, how well bikes with swing arms could handle. And it also, really, was a turning point in the public's perception as well, Kevin.
0: Mm, so they began to understand rear suspension has a as a reason has a future. Yeah. So by the mid '30s, um, bikes have triangulated rear swing arm and right. hydraulically dampened telescopic front forks. So very, very different. So that's a configuration we still recognise today. So their technological changes. where did they proceed from the '30s?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, at 1930s, it, it looks like what we'd recognize today. So from then on, there were many components and geometry improvements, but that configuration was largely the same right through to the 1970s. And then in 1973, Yamaha released the YZ360B, which is known as the monoshock. So that still had a triangulated swing arm, but the upper section included a pivoted linkage, which acted on a single spring damper mounted centrally above the wheel. And that brought a number of significant advantages, so firstly, as the wheel was being controlled by a single shock absorber it was easier to give a consistent response to the various loads acting on the wheel. So with double shocks that all the bikes had up until that point, although the two spring dampers are acting simultaneously they're actually experiencing slightly different compressive and bending loads, you know, because you know there are. Tolerant, assembly tolerances and the frame itself is in torsion, torsion and even just the geometry means that they're not seeing the same thing at the same time.
0: Yeah, I, I'm I'm smiling because I'm thinking of I have a 1984 Suzuki GS850. It's a big, big, heavy bike, and you can feel that through your backside. You can feel the two shocks at the back doing different things. You can. So yeah. it's a bike that's made for the planes, not for the twisties.
1: <laughs> Nicely put. Yeah. yeah, you can. You can feel it slightly moving around, right? You can a, a slightly um, vaguer feeling. And then the second benefit with a with um, the single shock. Is that that linkage mechanism between the swing arm, swing arm and the shock can be designed to give a force multiplication through leverage. So we call that the motion ratio. So it means that a large amount of wheel travel can be controlled by a small amount of damper travel. So monoshocks are now a very common configuration. In fact, today, the motorbikes that's, that retain double shocks, they do so either because it's cheap to manufacture or they actually just for aesthetic reasons.
0: Yeah, because I, I had a 1994 BMW R100 GS with a rear monoshock, although I cheated. I got an Olin's one as well, so it was really, really good. <laughs> um, Any other big changes?
1: <clears throat> yeah, so we've talked about the triangulated swing arm. So one variation on this was bikes that um that were shaft driven. So instead of having chains, they're driven by a, a drive shaft. So shaft drive bikes have a rotating shaft running alongside the wheel, which goes through a 90 degree bevel gear into the into the wheel. And BMW have probably been the most prominent builder of shaft drive bikes. The flat twin engine has been, it's really been a staple of BMW powertrains right since their first bike the in 1923, the, the R32. And to this day, all of their horizontally opposed their flat engines use drive shafts. In 1955, they launched the R50 and that had the drive shaft running in the swing arm frame. So one side of the swing arm was a conventional tube. And the other was a larger torque reacting tube and had the drive shaft running inside it. And you know, just as a general statement, Kevin, you know, anytime multiple components can be integrated together, it just makes a more efficient design solution and it reduces the part count, which is which is a, a, a cost for the manufacturer. And then for this particular solution, as well as all of those benefits, by running the drive shaft within the swing arm. ...BMW could ensure that they, the pivot point for the drive shaft and the pivot point for the swing arm were coincident. They were at the same point.
0: Uh, and they still use that
1: configuration today? Yep, they do. Um, or a version of that. So in 1987, BMW, the R80GS, so it's the bike just before your 100, mm-hmm. that pushed that idea of the integrated components even further by introducing the paralever. lever. So The side of the swing arm that had the conventional tube that was deleted entirely and the rear wheel was entirely supported by the drive shaft torque tube on one side only. And that's the introduction of what we now call single sided swing arms, so the main benefit of of a single sided swing arm is that the the rear wheel can be removed and fitted more easily and can actually be more easily aligned. And many people like the aesthetics because the, the wheel is exposed so the designers can make a feature of the rear wheel. It it,
0: it looks it looks clean. It's very it does. clean looking. It
1: absolutely does, yeah. Now it does generally increase the unsprung mass. So that's a term we looked at in the last episode. And so for that reason, many race bikes and many high performance bikes, even today, they still have a double sided swinger. They don't have a, a single sided. But but not always. Right. So there have been some, you know, very notable exceptions in that. So two bikes that stand out, the Ducati 916 wow. and the Honda RC30. They were both highly successful race-derived sports bikes, and they both use single-sided swing arms. and um, they're both highly desirable bikes. I'd be very happy to have either one of those in my garage today, Kev. So the,
0: the Honda, the RC30, it, it can take something from the BMW or R80GS.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't think that, I would you? think but, that at all, no, yeah. very, very different bikes, right? Yeah, Very different bikes. Um, another change that started to occur in the 1980s actually is something else we can say came from the power lever, and that was to move from swing arms, which were made of welded tubes, those made a sort of more complex fabricated box section, right? And the, so the power lever was the start of that. The power lever had to have a, a complex section in order to have that drive shaft on inside it. And then, although more expensive to manufacture, the box sections could give significantly higher stiffness. So that's a big benefit with them. And they can also be packaged in a neater volume. So they can they can be very neat, very very high, give a lot of stiffness. And they can be used to package that spring damper quite well and and really what started happening, then, is after the swing arm had the a fabricated box section. That approach was mimicked in the main frame also and manufacturers started to make you know, make that box section frame a real aesthetic feature it sort of exposed polished aluminum.
0: Yeah, and they had a polished aluminium and really like big welds, big trendy welds. That's right. Very, very cool looking, looking rugged looking. You know. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: So the eighties, that was that was the pinnacle of the high performance bike. That's when they really they they really.
1: Yeah, I think it really it really was. You know, so there was a lot of power gains in the nineteen eighties. One simple, actually, but quite effective change seen in the suspension was the introduction of the upside down fork. And it was the 1990 Suzuki GSX-R 750. That was the first bike that had the upside down fork. So traditionally, the stanchion, which is the larger, heavier part of the fork, was the moving element at the bottom. And by inverting the fork, the lighter part, the fork tubes, become the moving part. And again, that helped to reduce the unsprung mass.
0: Terribly simple, just turning it upside down. That's really smart. So that's used mainly for very high performance bikes. But in general, fork design has remained the same
1: it has yeah yeah so not all bikes have that upside down um fork even today there's one one really significant variation on how uh, the front end assembly has been designed and again came from BMW a, a company that has always kind of you know gone its own path in 1994 they released the R1000GS and in the tradition of all the GS models just like your one um this was a large bike with off-road capability um but it had a very unusual front end called a telelever so it was a concept that was developed by a british company called saxon Motod, but bmw are actually the company that brought it to production so there are still two forks but they don't carry any of the springing or any of the damping function so they're attached to a wishbone and the wishbone supports a separate spring damper and this is actually very similar to a semi trailing arm that you would have on it, the rear suspension of a car that we talked about in the suspension episode yeah. so the advantage of that system is that the front forks themselves can be lighter and because the front forks are not resisting the bending moment the front wheel position can be better controlled and the other thing it does is it separates the braking compression from the road bump compliance now
0: so, it so, is... so you're not so that like you're not going down like when i pull on the brakes in my BMW you go right down on the front fork so it's it that's up right. completely yeah
1: it does it does there's no compression and you even see the, even little things when you take the bike off a center stand it doesn't dip at the front it just it's kind flat. of glides horizontally flat. off yeah. yeah that's right yeah um now they're complicated and they're very expensive to make but BMW kind of trades it against the ruggedness and the, the stability on its bigger bikes
0: right so they designed these bikes to be able to go anywhere in the world yeah, that's right, yeah. they do. And, and most people who bought them didn't actually use them to go anywhere in the world, but you did. Um, <laughs> you took your BMW R100, what, across the Sahara through West Africa with your with, with Linda, your wife.
1: I did indeed, yeah, I did. In um, 2010, um, it's quite a while ago now, but uh, the memory's still very strong, yeah. So uh, we rode from County Limerick in the west of Ireland down through France and Spain, and cross into Western Africa. And then we traveled down the West Coast of Africa to, to Ghana. Yeah, it was a, it was a great trip. And, and, you know, the bike was very well able to cope with the terrain. You know, the bike was probably better able to cope with the terrain than the riders were on occasion, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least you used it for its intended purpose. And for that, we're very happy. We're very happy. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for today. Join us in our next episode when we'll be exploring motorcycle dynamics. See you then. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode, where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now.